welcome to the Fertility Conversations podcast. The goal of this podcast is to create more awareness about infertility and to provide support to people trying to conceive. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you will be encouraged. And now, here is your host, Ola. Welcome to another episode of Fertility Conversations. Today, we're joined by a lovely guest, Akua, who's a mom of two, and she will be sharing her journey to parenthood with us today. Uh, details would also be in the show notes. So welcome, Akua, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ola, for having me here. It's such a pleasure. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so we always start off by saying, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, um, as Ola had said, my name is um, Akuya Ankara, also known as Jane Ankara. Um, I chose to go by the my African given name because when I started to look into the fertility world, I did not find anybody like me or with similar heritage um, uh, like me from more specifically Ghana, which is where like my parents are from. And um, so I decided to resort to using the name Aquia Ankara as opposed to Jane. But I am a fertility advocate who is passionate about educating people about infertility with an aim to destigmatize people's approach and thoughts to infertility. Um, I'm also passionate about helping people realize their dreams of being parents in whichever form they choose. I'm also passionate about educating women and men to advocate for themselves. And finally, advocating for infertility causes such as insurance coverage. Um, so that's on, that's on the grand scheme of things. That's about who I am. Um, and also, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about my journey in detail, but this, my, my passion to be an advocate um, came as a result of me dealing with infertility for over 14 years, um, which it took us 14 years to have our first daughter and 16 years to have um, our second daughter through IVF um, and surrogacy. So that's wow. who I am in a nutshell, high level. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. And just before we get into your journey, I would like to know how did you and your spouse meet? Yeah, so my spouse and I, um, so when I was in college, um, I came down to visit a friend of mine and who I grew up with in Botswana, because that's where mm. I spend my formative years, I guess you want to say. And um, it was my senior year in college, which was basically my final year. And it was the Christmas holidays. And he, you know, I he invited me to come down. And so when I came, he... Um, told me that they normally meet as a family on Christmas day at their uncle's house. So he took me there on Christmas day. And um, that's where I met my husband. So I met him at his parents' house. Mm, love a first sight, eh? I, I think it was, you know, because he saw me and just started talking and he's not a talker, you know? Mm. And so he saw me and just started talking and, I, I think I was intrigued by him knowing that he's a chemist, but then he knew a lot about, at that time, there was a whole scandal going on in the business world, which <laughs> it's always the case, right? Um, mm. With uh, 
trading off hours and things like that with some traders. And I remember he, he knew all about it. And I thought I was so impressed. So I think that intrigued me about him. And then that's how we started. We were going to spend um, a night at the uncle's house, but uh, later on realized that my, my friend and his uncle uh, had decided that we would spend extra nights because they saw that there was a connection forming. Um, so, <laughs> <sounded> interesting. <laughs> yeah, they, they tricked me. Um, and uh, so we stayed, I think we stayed three extra nights and then we went wow. back to my friend's house. Yeah, I know, right? That was a nice Christmas party. It was. It, was <laughs> it, it, was, it really was. And uh, we went back to my friend's house and um, my husband followed me there. So I'd mm-hmm. say probably nine months later, we were getting married. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm not letting you and, go. <laughs> and here we are 16 years, 16, 17, 16 to 17 years later, here we are, almost 17 oh, years. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you to your friend from Botswana <laughs> for inviting you to that party. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. And so after meeting your spouse or even before that, was there a point in time that you said to yourself, you know what, I really do want to become a mom sometime in the future? Um, yeah, I, um, I definitely had, um, you know, I daydreamed about being a mom, but for whatever reason, I always thought I would to have one child, but I definitely wanted to be a mom. I, I just didn't want too many kids. Um, I saw myself as someone who is going to be more in the corporate side of things and then mm-hmm. have that one child. Um, but yeah, definitely. I did want a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Of course, I mentioned earlier, you're going to speak to us today about your path to parenthood. So if you could just please share your journey from uh, when yourself and your husband decided that you wanted to have kids until now. Yeah, so when we got married, um, I decided for my first two years, because I got married right out of college, like I said, literally, when I met him, I was in my final year, in my first semester of my final year. So when I finished college, we got married. And when we got married, I knew right away that I wasn't ready to start a family. I'd given myself about a window of two years. And so we started off, um, you know, we didn't really plan anything actively. I wanted to focus on also developing my career. And that's Mm -hmm. that's because I feel like whether it's true or not, whether people believe it or not, I feel like um, the corporate world is such that once you kind of step out to raise a family, the system doesn't give you the opportunity to come back and just come back to mm-hmm. yeah to just come back to where you were to pick up and go and so i wanted to be able to get to a certain level that when i came back in um and i didn't move i felt like i'd be okay being wherever i was and so i'm because of all of that in my mind at the back of my mind i decided that my first two years was going to be heavy duty focus on career Plus also just, you know, focusing on getting to know my husband better too, because we got married early. Um, And so I didn't really do anything about seeing doctors or anything till after my second year, I think my third year or so is when I started seeing OBs, the OBGYNs. And, you know, 
They did the checks, the pap smear, which is about the checks they always do. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, told me I was fine. Um, So I kept going about my business, you know, just um, knowing that the OB says you're good. And even though we wanted or I wanted, you know, I felt like I was kind of getting ready. I still wasn't really hanged up on if it happened. Or- um, so yeah, when we got when we got married, like I said, um, you know, I only dated my husband for about nine months, and so the goal for me was not to have children right away because I felt like we needed to know each other. Also, I had just finished college; I needed, um, you know, to hop on my career get something mm. started because I knew once I started having kids, it was always like big on my mind that once I start having kids before I get my career going, it was the career I was never going to take off. Um, so I was pretty adamant about that. Um, and he was fine with it. So I waited, we waited two years of which we, um, to actively start, but the, the irony of all of this is, I wasn't even on any contraceptives from the get-go, mm. even though I wasn't ready to be a parent right away. And it never yeah. happened. Nothing happened, you know, in that two years. But at the same time, too, it didn't bother me. I think it was right. like my third year or so because I had moved down, you know, from college into the area, everything. And I was totally new. And I felt like now that I had gotten settled in, like in my third year or so, I finally went to see an OB and, um, you know, the, the usual check, which a, a lot of times at that time, it was just like pap smear test and everything mm. checked out. And she told me I was good and I should be able to have children whenever I was ready. But um, that didn't happen. And I didn't bother or I wasn't hanged up on it because I was also busy occupying myself. I went back to school, to grad school to do um two masters as if I needed them you know I I was well done (laughs) thank you (laughs) whilst working full-time I was doing these graduate programs full-time as well so you know I was just really really busy um and then I had you know social life because I was young too and stuff and that was you know all occupying my time um and then I was also very focused on my career like I wanted to like I said get to a certain level and so just focus on working, 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 all of that stuff, just so I can get to that level that I was craving for. Um, so even though the pregnancy was not happening and I wasn't on any contraceptives and the OBs were telling me I was fine, for me, just having the OBs just constantly telling me I was okay was the stamp I needed to just keep going. Yeah. You know? Um, and so we just kept going until finally... Um, I think when like, like literally at some point, anyway, I, I, I want to say, uh, about five years or so into my marriage, the OBs noticed that I had, um, which I, I hardly talk about quite frankly, but, um, the OB noticed that I had some growth, fibroid growth. And so I did a hysteroscopy for that. She removed them. But we didn't talk about like what's my fertility plan or anything like that. 
Mm-hmm. And I just kept going about my business. She told me if I wanted to have kids, I could continue to, I could, I could have the kids. And for, again, that was fine with me. But then after like 10, I think like, so by this time I'd been married like 10 years or more, 11, 12, 11th year. Uh, again, I went to the OB and I, by this time it was really bothering me. And I was like, we need to get to the bottom of why this is not happening. And they did those, they finally did those tests that I didn't know they could have done the FSH and um, mm. the thyroid and all those tests. And it all came out that I was okay. Um, and so they came to me and they're like, yeah, you know, you're good. And so you should be able to, and I was just like, this is just not right. This doesn't seem right. So I then referred myself to an endocrinologist, which, you know, looking back, I don't even know why I was waiting on the OB to refer me to an endocrinologist. I expected them to, but they never did. So I should have checked myself in and I didn't because I was relying on them. Um, so I went to the endocrinologist um, and within an hour of them checking me out, they told me that I had fibroids. Mind you, three months before that I had seen the OB and there was no such thing about fibroids, at, if at all anything. It was like, your blood work is great. She touched my womb. She's like, oh, you're good. You should be able to have babies. Wow. So, but now this endocrinologist is telling me I am saddled with fibroids. And so there was no ultrasounds when you saw your no ultrasounds done. And mm. I was just so ignorant. Like, and I just can't believe how ignorant, to be honest, that I had allowed myself to be honestly. Yeah, but you trust your doctor, right? I mean, if your doctor says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I really gave them, I basically gave them my whole body and said, handle it. Mm. And I should have taken control to a certain degree. And, you know, that's why I am advocating for women and men to advocate for themselves because I learned it the hard way. Yeah. Um, so we, um, so yeah. The, when the endocrinologist told me that I was shocked because I'm thinking, what did she see three months ago? Like, how could mm. she have missed us? Anyway, he was telling me it looked pretty bad, but didn't want to go too into details and asked me to do an MRI. And like literally within 24 hours of that MRI, he called me and told me that I was infertile and that the um, fibroids were so densely packed. There's no way a sperm could swim through, or even a baby could even make it. Um, and three weeks later I was being, you know, um, taken in for surgery to do an abdominal myomectomy. Hmm. Um, so we did the abdominal myomectomy and I had a three months follow-up, but we were not going to start fertility treatment until six months after my abdominal myomectomy, but I had three months follow-up and during my three months follow-up, they noticed that I had another fibroid growth. Um, so they decided that because of where it is, which is the inner cavity, they needed to remove it. Um, So literally six months after my first surgery, I was having uh, another surgery being done um, to remove the fibroid from the uh, the, um, inner cavity. So right after that, which I think was September, of 2017 right after that november that year i went on to do my first iui and of course it failed um 
And then December of that year, I went back to do another IUI. And that's when they noticed another fibroid was growing in the wow. inner cavity again. Um, and so, you know, I then, they, well, they didn't think it was a bother though to, for me to remove it. It wasn't big enough yet that I needed to remove it. Um, and in January of 2018, I went to see another fertility doctor because the ones that I were, we were with kicked us out because my husband and I had gone counseling on fertility treatment. And, um, you know, it, it was that quite, it was that one question. I, I think he just couldn't stomach, which was like, what happens if we do it and it fails? And I kept saying, we'll do it again. And we'll, I kept saying, we'll keep doing it. And after our third our third try, we'll probably do adoption. And he just blurted out that he was not sure he wanted this. So mm. the psychologist wrote a report to the doctor saying that we were not on the same page. And the doctors decided that they didn't want to treat a couple that were not on the same page. <laughs> so well, many times that happens anyway, doesn't it? Like right. I mean, when and then that's what infertility does, right? Infertility yeah. puts a strain on your marriage. And I think it's it's his right to say that he's not sure you are because he he himself was exhausted from the fact that yeah. we've been dealing with this for so many years. And by this time we've gone through two surgeries. And you're talking about a third surgery potentially looming, right? So he's looking and thinking, I'm, I'm not sure if I want this. Um, so because of that, the following year, we started treatment with another fertility clinic and um, we started the IVF right away, went through the full cycle and just before embryo transfer, we noticed that the fiber that we had seen three months before that had grown tremendously oh, no. and they needed to remove it and so we went I went back under the knife in um, March ending and um, had them remove the fibroid and two weeks after that they went ahead and did an embryo transfer because they didn't want to wait too long least another fibroid grows so we went through that and then I was able to get pregnant with that uh, transfer and uh, went through the whole pregnancy. It was really rough. Body had taken a beating. And in the seventh month, I ended up being put on bed rest because of my constant, my feet were swollen, I think even right at three months or, or earlier. Um, which looking back now, I'm like, surely that should have been an indication that something was wrong with me, but nobody, mm really paid much attention to me on that. Um, and then in December, I went to deliver my baby and literally when they took out my baby, the placenta would not eject itself because apparently I had a scar tissue that the placenta had attached itself to. And um, as a result of that, I was hemorrhaging. So literally they took out the baby and then the doctor came to me and told me I was hemorrhaging to death and that they were going to have to put me to sleep. And so they then decided that um, my husband and the baby should be taken out of the um, OR and they put me to sleep and went to town on me and um, did a 
hysterectomy on me. Um, so that was really devastating to me because I never thought in a million years after all the struggles I had had that I would end up with a hysterectomy that was instant, that I didn't have the choice in a say in the matter, that I didn't have the time to uh, process. Um, so that was very devastating to me. I woke up with pints of blood by me. They had given me blood for me to make it. Um, and ironically, three weeks after delivery of my baby, I told my husband I wanted another child. And, um, you know, it was wow. literally one conversation hmm. in less than 10 minutes. We were driving through some back roads here in North Carolina. And, um, you know, I told him I'd been thinking that I really wanted another child. And he responded telling me he had wanted the same, but didn't know how to address it because of what I'd been through. And um, we talked about surrogacy being the best option for us because we had embryos in storage. Yeah, sorry, um, before you go into surrogacy actually, Akua, um, let's just backtrack a bit. You said that you had a hysterectomy when you had your first uh, daughter. Right. What, why, why, how did that happen? Like, why did that happen? Like, what was the reason why? Was there a condition or? Yes, um, actually, because the, the condition is called placenta increter. Um, basically, what had happened was as a result of all the multiple surgeries I had had, um, I had had a scar tissue that apparently the placenta had attached itself to um, the scar tissue. And all of this, ironically, like I said, had not been caught during my scans, my multiple scans, because I was of advanced age. Hmm. Um, when I was caring, trying to carry this baby, I think I was 39. And so because I was kind of what they would say, geriatric. <laughs> you know, I hear that word. Normally, the scans is more than the standard two, right? And I was going to maternal fetal medicine, which is for high-risk pregnancy um, doctors, but they never saw this during any of the scans that the placenta was attaching itself to the scar tissue. And they only saw it when they opened me up and took the baby out, that that was what had happened. And because of that, I was hemorrhaging to death. <laughs> Um, wow. yeah. yeah. And so I, I cannot even start to imagine how that must have felt like, cause you know, you just had your daughter after all this years of trying yeah. and then right away we are being told that you need to have a hysterectomy knowing fully well what that means that yeah. there is no um, yeah. chance of having another child yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember lying down there and yes, my life was at stake, but all I could think about were my children that were sitting on ice. And I, I remember just letting out a loud scream asking, what about my babies? You know, um, like you said. And I'm sure they were thinking your babies, like who, which babies? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, they were definitely confused. I'm like, what about my babies? I have all these embryos that I, you know, I had three more in storage that I, we knew that we wanted to 
now that we've had the opportunity to finally have children, we wanted to go ahead and have them all if we could. Yeah. Right. And so for me, that was what was weighing more on my mind than anything at that present moment. I was just screaming that out. Like, what about my, and just started to wail. Mm. And, you know, then the anesthesiologist showed up, the chief surgeons showed up and they're like, we're going to put you to sleep right away. And wow. um, so it was, it was very, 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 a traumatic experience, really tra- so traumatic that um, I, I, my stay in hospital was extended than usual. I think it was six, six days. Um, and my recovery to, you know, you know, for the whole thing, yeah. doctors did not release me back to work, so to speak, till about uh, five months into, and you know, in America, you only get eight weeks, if that, for a C-section birth. Um, mm. And for me, it was like- Which is nothing. Eight, yeah, eight which weeks. is really, I don't even know. I don't even know. Um, even yeah, five it's months, it's not yeah. enough. Yeah, if I, I mean, I felt like it was better than- Of course, I mean, yeah. But then right. considering what you're going through as well, though. Yeah. Like yeah, C-section plus hysterectomy, that's, that itself takes, uh, from what I've heard, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. whole lot of recovery time. I mean, such a high risk. Yeah. Even surgery itself. So, wow. Yeah. It was, it was really, really, it was traumatizing um, in all regards. You know, the postpartum was real for me. Like, I had heard about postpartum, but I had no mm-hmm. idea it was real because... I never thought, like I said, in a million years that I didn't even know this was a possibility that it could happen yeah. and someone wanted to give birth. So it it was a big shock to my system, to say the least. And then three weeks after you and your, is it three weeks yeah. after you said? Yeah. Wow, three weeks after that? Yeah, three weeks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was for me, it might, looking back, it might have been part of my recovery process mm. because I just felt the need to, wanted to do it again <laughs> yeah and of course you know? like you mentioned you had those three embryos yeah i wanted those babies um so we talked about it and um you know within a 10 minute conversation and he agreed that yeah we should go ahead and pursue the surrogacy route so i took that as my um you know as something that i could as a base to go off on start looking for a surrogate. And I'm not sure how rich you are, Akua, but um, <laughs> when, when, when I hear surrogacy, all I think is like, whoa, dollars, dollars, dollars. You know? Like even here in Nigeria, it is very expensive. Like from people have asked in agencies that it's about 8 million to 10 million, which you know, depending on the exchange rate, could be easy twenty something to thirty thousand U.S. dollars. So, and I know in the U.S. is usually about a hundred and more to yeah. two hundred. So, you know, when yeah. you tell me that you use a surrogate, I'm thinking, oh wow, how how know, wealthy right? is, is and, a cure? And, and that's how like the stars, right? You, we we only hear about surrogacy through the stars because it's so expensive. Yeah, but um, I'm not a trust fund baby. No, um, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth or anything. 
Uh, we're just regular hardworking people. And that's the honest truth. We do have decent jobs, but I'm not the CEO of any company by any means. I'm not, not yet. in senior executive management. No, well, yeah, not, not yet. yet. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. I'm just a middle level uh, manager or something in my current, in my current role. And um, I would say, A, how bad do you want this? Which is for us, we wanted it so badly. Right. And um, to make this a reality, I had been staying at home again because of the traumatic uh, birth and experience. Plus, then I got laid off from my job as well, right after delivery. Uh, So then I was like, why do I go back to work? And so I stayed home for a year. And um, but when we decided that we were going to take the surrogacy route, we knew that I had to go back to work for it to be a reality as well. so I went back to work. My husband took on a second job. And between, so between both of us, we basically had three jobs. But it was a team effort. Like sometimes my husband would come home and I'm asleep and I don't see him. But we were so driven by that goal of having that second child that that was all that we were like. It was on our mind. Mm. We talked, we communicated a lot throughout the day, multiple times a day. So even though I might not have seen him maybe for a day or two because of the time he would come in and I'm sleeping with the baby or something, we were still, communication was so big and good that we were both on the same page uh, throughout. And I feel like I didn't even miss a beat with him, whether he was here or not, you know. And so we just planned towards that. We knew that, yes, it is over 100,000. I mean, it can go as high as 200 or even 250, depending on, you know, if your travel, international travel is all incorporated into it. Um, And so we made a plan where, like I said, we were going to work. And, you know, we also found someone that was willing to work with us where they didn't require or need the agent that we used did not need the all of the money estimated um, cost of it up front. Yeah. And so we were able to like have half of the money readily available. Um, and through working, savings, retirement account, you know, all those re- sources of revenue revenue. And then um, try to start the process with that. But we also had committed by contract that every month we we're going to have X amount of money transferred into the bank account. And so that's why we were working. So we could have that part covered as well. I mean, even to the details, like I, I remember when the baby was coming, well, she was expected to be born in June. I mean, in February, but she came in January. And I remember in December, my husband and I talking and I was telling him we needed about like seven, six to seven grand to make our trip to where the surrogate is for her delivery, a possibility. This was just basically like ticket costs plus our food, hotel, car rental, right? And um, yeah, he went to town with that amount in his head, I guess, and made sure that by Mm -hmm. January, we had that amount ready for travel. And so when we got a call that the baby was, that the, net, that the surrogate was going to be induced, we were able to hop on a flight and get there on time 
for the delivery. So wow. It's I'd say it's a lot, it's commitment, commitment, uh-huh. commitment, commitment. Um, we don't we didn't do any vacations. We did not do any, we didn't take any car loans to go buy new cars or anything. Um, just live a basic life, but still make sure we were eating good food, but you know, just no frills and bells and all that stuff included. Yeah. Wow. Very impressive. Thank you for sharing that. Because again, like you noted earlier, we always think that's only for celebrities and or very extremely rich people. So thank you for sharing that it can be done. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I'm talking to people that I'm a regular person, just like the average person with the majority of people, we are regular. <laughs> the 1% is really the 1%, right? Yeah. And so if I did it, you can too. Mm. You absolutely can. And I'm just wondering, you know, with all this going on, uh, infertility, having your first daughter, having the history up to me, the whole journey of trying to find a surrogate, the whole process, and even before all of this, what impact did you have on a relationship? I know you noted earlier that the first fertility clinic said that you're not on the same page, but you know it is hard to be on the same page all the time during infertility with your partner because everyone deals with things differently. Everyone had, or maybe you both might have different ideas. You might want to explore an option. He might not want to explore an option. Yeah. Can, can you share how this whole situation and infertility, how it impacted the relationship mm-hmm. And if there were times where both of you were just not sure how you're going to move forward. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I have stressed that it took me 14 years to get here, right? For mm-hmm. To have baby number one. Uh, why did it take so long, even, the do- even though the doctors were, you know, taught saying things that clearly looking back were not true, right? Why did it take so long? Why did I still, some people would say, but you're educated, you should know better. Why did you just sit around? Well, because there are two of us in this marriage, right? So I have to get my husband on board. And his thing was like, oh, okay, yeah, no, but let's keep trying. Mm-hmm. Let's keep trying. Dude, 10 years later, let's keep trying. Trying for what? Like, it ain't happening, right? So we could never agree on a treatment plan or an action, let's start with an action plan to begin with. His was like, let's just keep trying. And it was like, no, you know, he had alluded before we got married, he wanted three kids. And I had told him I wanted one and we compromised saying, we'll do two children. And so now we're just to keep trying 10 years later. That was very, very disturbing to me. And when I really realized my time is not on my side and my options are closing in. That's when I decided that with or without him, I would have to go to the fertility doctor because I, I felt like I needed some answers to find out what, what is going on with me, if not anything. Hmm. Um, and so even my initial fertility doctor visit, it was just me. Right. My It was just me because he was like, let's keep trying. And then when the appointment time came, he said he didn't, he, you know, he had commitment. So when you noted that, you know, you were not on the same page and of course you decided to go on to the fertility clinic with or without him. But even when you were told about what was happening with yourself uh, in terms of fibroids, was he like, when you decided the options to go forward, 
was he willing to to go ahead and listen to whatever you decided? Yeah, um, he actually was supportive of the fibroid um, treatments. He went with me for my surgeries, um, you know, all, all throughout. Um, at this point, I think he just realized that, you know, with or without him, it was something was going to get done. And so it was either he was going to hop on board or not. Um, and so he actually, you know, he came along with me for the surgery treatments and, and, um, you know, I eventually agreed to be also analyzed by the doctors as well. So, yeah, that's, um, it, it definitely was not a, an easy thing at all. It definitely was not. And that's why, again, I keep saying it took us 14 years, but the, the best part about it is when we got there, when we finally got to the point where he had agreed that fertility treatment was what we were going to pursue, I think he had decided that he was going all out, you know? And so when we finally, uh, when I had the hysterectomy and we realized that surrogacy was going to be our only option, it wasn't, I didn't need to con convince him in any shape or form to do it because um, he was sold out into it, you know, he was sold out. And I, I think he realized at that point that I, I think he realized when he said yes, that to, for us to pursue this, that it meant all options, you know, to make this a reality. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And traveling fertility journey, you know, it's amazing that you went through all of that and you're now such an advocate for, for surrogacy, for people advocating for themselves early, for you being a part of your fertility treatments and also, you know, having second opinions is so passionate and you're always speaking out and sharing your experience. Did you not feel like, I mean, when I look around here in Nigeria, even in the Western world, we don't have a lot of black people speaking about this or speaking about infertility or sharing their journeys or showing their face. Mm -hmm. uh, so what inspired you to do that? Um, I was really angry at the fact that nobody ever told me anything except prayers. Oh yeah. They told me about praying, how I needed mm -hmm. to pray and all of that. And yes, some people would ask, have you seen the doctor? My prayer was what I heard more of in my ears than anything. But nobody had told me that, you know, I've experienced ABC. Maybe you should get yourself checked out. You know, yeah. well, I'm not saying this is what has happened, but you never know. I never got anybody to educate me on anything. Even the doctors were horrible, right? Because they never told me anything either. Even the one yeah. that did the hysteroscopy didn't tell me what it implied. Now that you've done hysteroscopy, honey, it's we removed some fibroids. They're not cancerous, but they could grow back. I didn't know that. You know, so I was really angry that why did I have to go in circles to find out this? You know, save me the energy and the time and let me rechannel that into something else. But I had to find out the hard way, which was by me doing all the groundwork myself. So if I've gone through it, I've done a lot of digging and stuff. 
why should I watch my fellow sister dig in the same hole when I've already done that? Yeah. Let her take that energy and go use it for something else. Hmm. So that's the where I'm coming from with sharing is so that first of all, A, if somebody's going through this, they don't have to try and reinvent the wheel. It's already there. B, for those that are coming up that have not even thought about fertility to start thinking about it. Yeah. Because it's very important. Those are the, the those are the education sessions we never get from not from our parents, not from the school. Nobody teaches you these things. Yeah. We're well quick done. to teach you prayer, but we're not going to teach you, uh, tell you about all these things. Your mom will not tell you. In most cases, most moms do, do not even let their daughters know that they have fibroids. Yeah, there's so much uh, societal issues and norms that we need to definitely address and more education needed. Uh, I know that when we were younger, I heard a lot about how to not get pregnant, which is great, you know. Yes, it's good to make us aware of how not to get pregnant as teenagers and all that. But um, beyond that, I think, even if not in high school, definitely uh, in college or universities, we need to be having more conversations about how to make it happen whenever the time arises in the future. Absolutely. So aware. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the two things that I'm like, college did not teach us, which is a financial management, which I think should be a staple part of our. That should be course by itself, compulsory course. And then two, (laughs) fertility. Talk about fertility preservation. Because if you can budget your books properly, you can save and go have that fertility preservation. And then work on your career and all of that stuff. And then when you're ready, voila, you can start building your family. Well, does that mean it will not be challenging? It could be, but it's, the stress is less. Yeah. At least you you're know, aware. Yeah. You're aware too. You're aware. And so you can try and mitigate the risk mm-hmm. by thinking things through and seeing what you could do and educating yourself on, you know, what you could do. Um, exactly. And so for me, that was just really hurtful that I, well, I'm sure I wasn't the first. No. And, but yet there was, there was nothing. I couldn't find any um, person with a Ghanaian name on Instagram. I was shocked. I am sure the whole country is not uh, fertile. <laughs> like, I mean, well, I think right. they have fertility clinics in Ghana. So they do. <laughs> I so certainly they're using it. They are not a, a super fertile nation. Otherwise, they would have made it on the media and given the book of records. So why don't we have somebody talking about it? And that was very aggravating to me. Well, well done on speaking about it and sharing. I mean, I found you on Instagram, so I'm so glad I did. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad I am. You know, I got out yeah. there, and um, yes. I knew I would share my story, and there was no doubt because when I had my daughter, what I did, I created an Instagram page for her because I was going to mm-hmm. use her to tell my story. Right. But I didn't know exactly when I was going to do that. And mm-hmm. after the surrogacy, I was like, okay, it's time to, to go on and start talking. Well done. Yeah. And I know that I wanted to ask you about this. You know, there's a lot of talk every time about if a child is donor conceived, 
should we tell them or not? And, um, you know, people are not sure how, or do you want people to know, right? Do you want your friends and family to know that even if you told the child, what about everybody else? Uh, there's always a lot of talk about that. What's mm -hmm. your opinion about telling a child or not telling, or even telling public or not? Well, um, so, you know, I've, as I've been sharing my journey, I've, con I've um, purposely left out my husband because it takes two to make a baby, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the, the sad thing about infertility world is even if it's a male factor, a lot of emphasis is still put on the woman. She's the one yeah. that's still going to get the shots every day. She's the one that's still taking the medication. Even if there's male infertility, a male factor in there. And so in my situation, we had also the male factor, which is what we found out later on, like way later. Hmm. Um, and at that point, we decided, well, I decided, because again, this, this is, you know, one of the things that puts strains on the marriage, you know, again, Infertility as a whole puts a strain on a marriage. And then talk about layering on a donor sperm. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's really stressful. And so um, it was one of those dis discussions that we had that obviously it didn't go so well. My husband was talking about how he did not see himself raising a child that was not genetically his. And at that point, I was like, well, then I guess we're going to go our separate ways. So yes, our marriage was going to come to an end because, and I had concluded that, that I was fine living as a single mom because um, I just didn't want somebody to take that away from me, to my opportunity to be a mom. Um, and so, you know, we talked about the donor conception and even though he wasn't on board, we, I told him that I was going to proceed and we were going to go our separate ways. And because for him, he couldn't see past, how is he going to love this child that is not genetically his? Um, so I, you know, we, we started the journey. Ironically, he did show up for embryo transfer. You know, he was there with me. He was there with me for my surgeries, was there for embryo transfer. Um, and was very there for me throughout the pregnancy. And when the baby was born, it was a 360 degree turnaround. Oh, wow. In my mind, I was going to be leaving the house to move on with my life. And I was really like on a serious note, planning my life with my child alone. But he was, of course, with me during delivery and everything. And, you know, just seeing the baby, mm. I think the whole, everything was just the emotions where it just overtook him. And before he knew it, he actually was asking me, you know, when we talked about um, wanting a second child, he was like, he had been thinking about it, but he didn't know how to ask me because- wow. I think he had thought about all the stuff he had put me through. Mm. <laughs> plus now, and also the fact that I had a hysterectomy. Plus, yeah, plus that traumatic, yeah, experience. And so he was telling me he didn't know how to ask me, but he basically was so grateful 
that I had taken the steps and made that decision. I choose to call it executive decision. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, going with a donor and choosing the donor, I was um, conscious of choosing a personality or trait that was very much like my husband. Um, And that's because, you know, we wanted, I wanted something that looks like us hmm. um, overall, um, which it's not that easy to find in the donor world at all. We are just not given much. When I say we, uh, BIPOC, Black people, What's that? Uh, Black people uh, of Indigenous color. Yeah, I'm asking that for anyone listening that might not right. be sure. Um, we just don't do a lot of, um, sperm and egg donation. And so it's really hard when we get into that world to find people that look like us. I mean, I remember going online with, at the, to the cryobank, looking at the cryobank that my uh, fertility doctors had recommended. And I want to say about 5,000 people in their pool, only 25 were black. 25 out of 5,000? Mm-hmm. Oof. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, There's certainly more awareness for people to even donate to, people absolutely. even know their oof. Absolutely. Wow. It was really, really little. And even the quality, um, you know, because you look at everything from the health to the the health, to the um, education level and all of that. Yeah. And it really gets smaller as you hone in on those type of things. Um, so it was very tough, but, you know, the baby came and he was just so blown away with her. They're like a pea in a pot. Basically, sometimes I feel like an outsider. I feel like I was just a carrier, <laughs> and that was it. Like I get warned for not driving and talking on the phone by my husband. That you know you've got the children. You shouldn't be. Um, I'm like it's hands free. Still, don't talk on the phone even if it's hands free. I'm like, dude, okay, calm down. <laughs> you know? But isn't so, that amazing though? To you know, bond between to them. See, uh... And she has so much of his traits yeah you mean the first daughter yes hmm. well, even the second one too which we'll get to that one so much of his traits it's mind-boggling she looked the first one looks like me but it has so her personality the calm cool m- monotoned child <laughs> it's her dad Isn't definitely not me you know yeah. Um, and people, some people tell him that she looks like him and he'll be like, really? Because we look at each other cause we know, yeah. but, um, we have started sharing with our daughter. Um, uh, we have bought her, we read to her a lot. And so we've, you know, started reading to her about her being donor conceived, um, which I have been telling her through stories and, you know, she's two and, you would think two-year-olds do not understand, but yes, they do. Um, they if they might not get the full picture, but they do get the seed has been planted. And um, 
why do I do this is because A, there's nothing wrong with her being donor conceived. She's a human being. She's not a monkey. Um, just like anybody else, if she was walking on the street, nobody would know. B, it's her story. I don't want to deprive her of it. It's who she's made of, how she's mm. made. Uh, one day, if health um, issues come into question, at least we can be able to look and see which side it came from. So it's her story and I want her to own it. Also culturally, we're told not to tell, but in so doing, you're actually robbing the child of knowing the truth. I always put myself in their shoes and say, would I want to know if I was them? How would I feel if I found out down the line that I've been living a lie that I don't care what anybody would say to me is your parents loved you and they went all out for you, but it was a lie. I, I'm going to be so honed in on the fact that they didn't tell me that piece that I would feel like they've lied to me and be wondering what else have they lied about to me all my life. Hmm. And when people get into that kind of space, you lose that child. And um, we talked about it and realized that it would be in our best interest to let her know. Also, this is the best part about um, fertility treatment is especially when you're going through donor conceive, we were required to go for counseling, which, you know, looking back is one of the best things. And during counseling, the counselor talked with us and even made recommendations of some of the children books, which is what I ended up buying for them. And also showed um, studies that show children that knew from, you know, as young as three or before to those that found out older and data shows that those that found out older have a lot of emotional problems that mm. um, understandably so I would be, I would be totally outraged. I would, I don't know if I could recover from it, finding out, you know, through the grapevine. And um, what I tell people is you think you have a secret. It's not a secret if one person, even if that one person is your husband, that knows about it, yeah. it's not a secret. Therefore, somebody else is gonna know. And in this society that we are in, people tend to be mean-spirited. Some people think by them knowing they have leverage over you and one day might wanna throw it in the child's face and say, oh, by the way, you know, just to be- um, Exactly. Just to get some, you know, to be hateful, so to speak. And they could try and say things like, by the way, you know, that's not your biological parent. Well, if you tell that to my daughters, they're going to look at you and say, and so what? We know exactly. that it's not a big, because they've grown up knowing, and they're probably going to look yeah. at you like there's something wrong with you because to them, it's very normal. They've known it all their lives. So we don't want our children to, it's for me, it's like, for us not telling them, it's like you're putting the honors and the guilt on them to, for them to carry. Yeah. But it's our job. It's for me, this is, it's all encompassing a lot of things. And that's why um, if you ask my daughter, she was, if you tell her, bring up the subject of the donor's birth, she said, oh yeah, donor seed. And sometimes she even says donut seed. She can't pronounce it. 
donut, donut seed. seed. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. Because <laughs> she, um, she knows. And we don't care if she goes out to the world and blood it out to them. My family knows. Um, it's not a secret in our family. Um, and so, yeah, it's there. It's, it's not our headache for them to figure how they feel about it. That, that I can't, we can't help that. We've done our part, we, le we let you know, so, yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I know, of course, you're a big advocate for surrogacy, uh, big advocate for speaking out and letting people know they're doing not conceived or not. And of course, you're stressing the fact that there's nothing to be ashamed of and to normalize these conversations. Uh, since you've been speaking out about surrogacy, um, you know, have you had people, like what has been the reception? Has it all been positive or has it been a mix of both or? Um, for the most part in the Western settings, I think people seem receptive towards it, but then they're intrigued by it. And in, in a lot of cases, because we read about surrogacy through the stars, right? The Gabriel Union and all. So then here comes this regular Joe who is having a surrogate. <laughs> but people are like really intrigued by it. Like, wait, how, how is that? Like my husband talks about it at work. Like his colleagues are intrigued by it. And it's like everybody was waiting to see that how the end was going to be like. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's more of intrigue. People are more intrigued than anything. Um in our African and cultural settings, the first thing I get told by my family members, well, not my immediate family, my extended family members are like, don't tell anybody. I'm like, why did I come in a crime? <laughs> you know, I'm like, and I, I, I then I'm quick to correct them to say, actually, I need to tell you know why? Because people need to know that there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a crime. Right, and for our children too, when you start talking and saying, don't talk about it, then you're already kind of planning into their head that there's something wrong. Yeah. And they will carry that in their head. So I do not want, these children did not ask to be born. We made the conscious effort to, we actually went out of our way to make, against all odds, went out of our way to have them. It is our, it is, our responsibility to make sure that they are happy and you know safe yeah and so whenever i get told don't tell i'm like no actually i am going to tell because people need to know about it people need to be educated about it um and when i start to explain you know how it can make an impact then they're like, yeah, I see. And then they even start, oh, you know, I know such and such a person who had done something similar. They start bringing out people's names that I really don't care. I don't want to hear it. I just, I'm telling you why I'm yeah. telling people is because we need to normalize it. It's not a crime. And, and then there's some that come to you with religious um, things to say, it's not of God. And then mm. you're like, which Bible did you read? Because the one that I read, in the New Testament says that Jesus was born through Mary, who is a virgin. Mm. How did a virgin conceive? And then when you read that same Bible that I also read, 
it talks about the Holy Spirit, the Lord talking to her and saying the Holy Spirit will come upon you and that's how you're going to get pregnant. That means that, that that egg and sperm that made Jesus was not from Mary. Mary was a virgin. Mary was a surrogate for Jesus. And this Jesus came and saved the world. So actually, surrogacy is a beautiful thing. If you did ask me, a surrogate gave birth to someone to save the world. For those of us that believe in, in that are Christians that believe in this. Like, isn't that the most perfect gift on earth? That's why to me, surrogacy is the most beautiful thing on earth. It's a sacrifice. And if Mary hadn't given birth to Jesus, we wouldn't be here saved as Christianity has told us. Hmm. So for me, um, I need, I feel like people need to be more thinking about this more critically than just, you know, taking things at surface value and just running with it. Because really, even if you want to go back to the church, to Christianity, Jesus at the end of it was born through a surrogate. It was not her sperm. Joseph was supposed to be the father. It wasn't his sperm. And the egg did not come from Mary. She was a virgin. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, analogy. And they never say that way. So thanks for sharing that. Oh, no, thank you. I just feel like this is something that for me, I'm a Christian too, right? I prayed about just about everything pertaining to our journeys. I prayed about it. Even using donor sperm, you know, I, I, I didn't think that um, that was how it was going to happen. I didn't think, I never thought in a million years that I was going to have to use donor seed, as my daughter calls it, to conceive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you know, God's hand is in this. Yes, anyone listening? Yes, God's hand was in this because eight or nine years prior to my daughter being born, I had a dream that I had a curly haired baby. Now I'm 100% pure African bred. My husband is 100% pure African bred. Okay. But then we have a curly haired baby. And in this dream, she was lying in a basket and lying in a part of our house. I didn't even know this basket existed, quite frankly. Um, lying in a part of our house where one of our family members was asking my husband if that was truly his child. And he was like, yes. Um, and I woke up from the dream and thought, curly haired baby. But I didn't think much of it. But all this time, my eyes were focused in the one direction that I knew how to make a baby, which is the traditional mm -hmm. way. Or I had been raised to believe was the only way. Fast forward eight or so years later, I'm, you're sitting in an endocrinologist's office and they're staring at you and saying, these are the options you have. And then she comes out and she's curly haired. And it came full circle for me that this was what God was telling me. The hundreds ago. This is mm -hmm. what you're gonna have to do, but it didn't make sense to me. 
Wow. You know, and even the basket, I didn't know it existed when I've, I did a lot of faith purchases. I bought her bassinet um, a year and a half to two years before she was born. And I, I stumbled on the basket. I just stumbled on it. And I was like, I love this basket. And I bought it for her as a bassinet. So that dream became a reality. Like it was a real dream. And so, yes, God's hand is in everything. If, the, if God did not want any of these things to happen, he could have stopped it because he did in Genesis when he mm -hmm. realized that people were trying to get to heaven. He decided, you know, I'm not ready for this yet and brought about different languages and to distort. So the mere fact that he's allowed the doctors to carry this knowledge and help families, build families, make it into a reality, to me, tells me God's hand is in it. Yeah. You know, today we are the happiest home any, any family could be. We don't care what anybody thinks. There's so much peace and joy in our home that it's like we can't, we can't imagine our lives without our our two daughters and potentially a third child. Wow. You know, we just can't. That's imagine. amazing. So um, to those out there that wonder about donor conceived children, I also want to say that it's not the seed. <laughs> That's my daughter called it. <laughs> that matters. Yes, genetically, it's my, you know, it's not 100%, you know, as a donor, the part of the donor is in there. But what makes the child is the love and the home and the environment the child mm -hmm. is in. That's what makes the child. The child will, can have your traits and everything pertaining to you and your spouse. Even though the egg might not have been yours or the sperm might not have been um, yours. But they can have that traits because of your traits because of the environment in which they are raised in. Yeah. So environment is very key. And that's also my answer to those that ask about epigenetics, which has become like a hot topic is, uh, you know, and I don't know if people know about it and the way I understand it or from my little basic bio knowledge is in the womb, the, um, the womb environment decides which, um, I get which traits to allow to grow and which ones to suppress. Yeah. And that's the womb environment. However, the DNA stays the same. No traits, traits can be altered. My daughter went through our surrogate was quite a screamer when she was born. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna lie. She could scream and she loved to do it at 3 a.m. And you, the whole house was wake up because you think you're killing her. <laughs> um, but we are very calm people. Like I said, my daughter, the oldest one is monotone. Like just daddy too is very calm. And so, um, you know, fast forward three and a half months later, she's calmed down a lot. She can be awake <laughs> and just lie there. You won't even know that she's awake. 
you know, she has picked up, I feel like she has picked up on our environment, which is we like to be very calm. We don't like, we don't want anybody st stressing us out over anything. Yeah. No, and <laughs> I feel like she has. She's like, I need to adapt. Yeah, she has adapted <laughs> to it. And so she can be awake and a lot of times we, we don't even know she's awake unless you look at the camera and realize, oh, she's awake because she sleeps by herself. Yes, she does, but four months. And wow. um, and so- That's a big deal. Yeah, no, I get my kids out of my, my room <laughs> like really quick. I, my oldest one was out like five to six months. In fact, she was out like five months. It was the dad that kept holding on for dear life. And like, <laughs> I was like, that's it, we're done. And so, yeah, at four months, she sleeps by herself in her room. And like I said, she will wake up, but she's not going to scream her lungs out. Like, when you come get her, you come get her. She's fine with it. And so uh -huh. environment is really important um, in, in, in raising your children. I think that's more important than the um, DNA piece my opinion well so said we should not be hanged up on it thank you for sharing that and i know that you're also in the process of starting your own surrogacy agency um so really excited about that uh you you know from your experience now deciding to start up a surrogacy agency to help people so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and can people in nigeria or the parts of the world also access your services or is it only for people in the in the United States? Oh no, that's for everybody, you know. Um going through what I've been through, my passion really is helping people, like I've already said, having a family in whichever form they choose. Mm. Right. And also realizing that there's a huge scarcity for especially the male donor for people of color, black indigenous people of color. Um, and um, so what my agency is doing, what I'm choosing to focus on is, you know, first of all, to create um, kind of a registry of potential donors so that when we have families that look like you and I that come to us for our services and are struggling to find a donor. We can help them with some with some of what we have from our registry. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very key on the there are three pieces I'm key on in the surrogacy um, agencies. A finding your good surrogate. Um, my surrogate and I actually run in this together because we've had such a successful journey together. Ironically, my surrogate left seven hours by flight from us. By flight, yes. But this journey was seamless. I never felt a day in my life that I needed to go spying on her and see what she was doing. I followed <laughs> her on Instagram and I could sometimes see the meals she posted. And sometimes I thought the portion sizes were too small for two people. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't go jumping on her neck and be like, excuse me, ma'am. Uh, that's not enough for two. You know? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> if you go into surrogacy with a mindset of trying to control, you're going to go crazy. And when you do that, you're putting stress on the surrogate, which in turn goes on to your child. And then you wonder why you have a child that's all rah, 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 like wide awake every night because you <laughs> did it by putting stress on the surrogate. Okay. So word of advice, do not stress them out. You need them to be calm so that they can give you a calm baby. They're going to give you what you give them. If you give them um, anxiety, they'll give you an anxious baby, let's just say. (laughs) But um, on a serious note, though, um, so, yeah, my surrogate was just really tremendous in um, supporting our journey. Some of the things that she did, and um, Ola, I know you've heard her speak. She talks about surrogacy from the point of having a servant's heart. And which is just to serve the family, to help them fulfill their dreams. And I recognize for me, who it took me 15 years to get to the point of we're going to have a surrogate, right? It's not a decision that people reach overnight. Um, so by the time you get there, you've explored all other options. And you realize it's just none except this is your only last stop or hope for the most uh, part. Because even sometimes in adoption, it can fail. I've heard of stories where, especially the ones where the they're waiting for the baby to be born and last minute the person withholds, you know, mm. change their mind. Yeah. Um, I've heard of stories like that. So it can fail, right? But by the time you come to surrogacy, it's like, this is all your, your last option for the most part. And so I recognized that and my, uh, my surrogate also recognized that. And so she's so passionate about making sure that she has a life birth or gives a life birth or like a rare term, give you a life birth. Um, and what we have done together, what she did for me during my, our pregnancy was um, she always requested that we read books to the baby, record our voices reading books. And so oh. we did that. Um, she always requested us playing, um, playing, um, you know, like if I, if I was reading a scripture and administered to me that, you know, we should record that scripture and I would do that you know I would read the scripture uh and use it to say a prayer for my daughter and she would play it for her she told me how she played classical music for the brain development of the baby um yeah she was very passionate about it um so you know I just felt like it was a natural thing for us to go in together because I'm I'm an IP and she's a gestational. She's been really successful. She's carried for cho- she's carried for family in Australia. Oh, nice! So yeah, that's actually a good example of showing that you don't need to be in the states. For- you do not need to be in the country for you to have a surrogate in America. And so Teresa is in charge of. Um, you know, screening all our potential surrogates and making sure that 
you know, they have the same passion and drive that I got from her when we were going through our journey. Um, and for me as an intended parent, I get it. I get it that sometimes you lie awake at night, like wondering, like, is this real? Is it safe? You know, you have a ton of things going through your mind. I get all of that. And so as an intended parent too, I want to work and focus a lot on the intended parents to help them manage their emotions going through the journey. I get it, you know? And then I also offer a lot of peer support. And what do I mean by this? There are some that will not need surrogacy, but they're going through infertility and are they about to start their treatments and they just need some support. Um, based on my experience, I mean, we've clearly transcended through several phases of infertility from donor conception, IVF, IUI, surrogacy. We've touched on so many paths that are not very familiar to people. And so I'm more than happy to, you know, support people as they need on the emotional side as they go through the journey, because I do realize that it can be very emotionally draining. So that's in a nutshell. Sorry to go around about this and no. you know, a long winding way, yeah. but um, that in a nutshell is what we offer um, our clients. And it does not matter which part of the world they are. We are more than willing and do work with people from outside the country. Um, I am yet to officially launch it, even though, yes, I do have clients that I'm currently working with, but I'm yet to officially launch and I'm hoping to do that by um, the end of the summer at the latest, have it officially launched with all our bells and whistles out Mm. there so people can see. But um, yes, we are open and currently supporting families. And again, it's on a very limited basis. I don't just take any intended parent. Um, We know we have to make sure that you know, it's not everyone that's a good fit for you in the sense of like, um, some some people don't want the the full what's it, what's it called like support. Some just want part partial support here and there, or some just oh some. My biggest thing is intended parents that will hoard over a surrogate. We just cannot have that, and it's not because we don't understand we understand but if you put a lot of pressure on the surrogate it's not going to be good for your baby at the end so a lot of times when i talk to intended parents i i gauge you know what kind of relationship they're expecting with the surrogate and Mm. we decide from there if we want to work with you because i'm very big on not putting pressure on the surrogate and so and that's I think that's a very of, important point. That's a very yeah. important point that you stress that because I think we don't realize, people don't realize how much uh, put in the stress and, you know, and, and, and how much strain they're putting in their lives as well to do this. So yes, uh, certainly don't need the additional stress or pressure. Uh, I mean, of course, I understand it's a difficult situation for everyone involved, but it's just, I guess, having your kind of agency where you're supporting them and also advising them the importance mm-hmm. of not um, like, you know, being so like wanting to have every single detail about what the right. surrogate is doing every minute. 
right. how not necessarily not how not useful that is and how that can impact yeah. the well-being of the surrogate and the baby as well. So definitely. Oh yeah. So that you know, we tend to interview the intended parents and see where they are at and stuff. And then we decide that is my biggest criteria for me when we're screening, so to speak, with intended parents is people that will you just don't need, it becomes information overload and you're going to worry mm. yourself to death and you really don't need that. And I can understand you do need information. You know, it has to be a fine balance. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I do this on a very limited basis because I want to be able to give that individualized one-to-one-on-one -on -one attention to mm -hmm. the journey um, that we're going through. So but feel free to reach out at the moment through Instagram. And my handle is aquia.ankra, which I think Ola will have. Yes, I put here. it in the show notes um, as well, yeah. And so feel free to reach out through Instagram and I'll be, we'll be more than happy to communicate with you and you know see if we can have a good journey together because we yeah. are a family by the time this is done. You, we are really a full family, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> between the definitely surrogate and the intended parents. So yes, yeah. Well said, and we're so really looking forward to the launch of your agency. Um, Certainly, at the, the summer. So hopefully, we can have you back again, and then you can give us more information at the time. Oh, certainly, certainly will do. And knowing all that you know now, here. Looking back, I don't know, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Uh, fertility preservation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, you know, learning what I learned, what I know now in all honesty, and it's funny, I was actually having that conversation with um, someone this afternoon to say, you know, Fertility preservation sounds funny, but it's true. And that, you know, it's funny because doctors don't even tell us about it. Mm. What a doctor, the, when you're, when you're, when you're getting up in age, the first, they'll tell you, the first thing that comes to mind, you better hurry up and get married. You're like, yeah. why are we pressuring <laughs> to rush into bad marriages, so to speak, right? Um, I wish I knew all about fertility preservation because what does fertility preservation do? It gives you the flexibility to be able to focus in on the things that are, you know, very important. Don't get me wrong. We grew up in a society where we are told you need to go to school. And after school, when you get that bachelor's, you get married. And after you get married and you, you no, when you get that bachelor's, when you're done, you get a career. And then in the midst of your career, you get married. And then when you get married, then you have the baby. It's all supposed to be like that, right? And then yeah. you find out as you go through life's uh, journeys that it doesn't always work like that. No, and so, and fertility preservation will allow you that path that mankind has set for themselves, which is let's get the bachelor and then let's get the, um, let, let's get the, the corporate job that will pay me all that money that I want. And then after we do that, then let's go on and get married and all of that. Fertility preservation, while that's not, you know, the main goal of it, is that um, it gives you the options to be able to take your time to find that partner that you really want to spend your life with and not be hanged up on the fact that your biological clock or even his biological clock is ticking. Because yes, it happens to men too. Yes. Um, 
And so it also, what I would say is it helps you to plan better for your life. And as a result of that, I think it's important. Um, what I would tell my 18 year old self is that there are also many paths to parenthood and mm -hmm. to choose which one is best for them and not be hanged up on the one way. I would also um, tell myself to make sure to learn about the illness, the health issues in my family on both the extended side as far back as we can go and you know, on the immediate side so I can educate myself about the, what I could do to mitigate the risks because we found out fibroid is genetic. Mm, yeah. Um, it goes from, you know, if mom had it, chances are daughter will have it. Aunties have it. And, but then nobody tells you, you know? No. So me being educated about just knowing the, the different illness in the family, I think in itself is an education. And then you hone in more, okay, so what can I do to mitigate the risk of me going down this path as well? Yeah. So those are the things I would tell my younger self. Um, and Thank it's you okay. for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And it's, it's okay. okay if the life path that, you know, mankind, I call it culture, has carved for us, we don't end up feeling that per se, as far as when to have their children. It's okay. Because we it realize is. again, over and over, that it's not a given that when you lie on your back that one time it's going to happen <laughs> no it's <laughs> not <laughs> put it crudely you know um, yeah um so but i still encourage young people to plan for your future very well by doing fertility preservation because you know you first knowing about it ahead of time gives you the option to be able to plan financially to take that exactly. journey and um, I think it should be part of our uh, curriculum in universities. They should. So hopefully with more of us speaking about this, are you advocating so passionately, so involved in so many things in the States as well? Hopefully this can change and we can uh, get more fertility education for people at a younger age. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And as a wrap up, Akio, do you have any words of encouragement that you'd like to share to anyone or couple trying to conceive and listening right now? Yeah, I would say that um, there are many paths to parenthood, so many, that if your goal is to carry a baby, hmm. I do believe that these paths available, at least one of them will work for you. However, if you're genetically hanged up on having your baby, then keep an open mind to know that the end might not be, you know, what you would expect. But if you're looking for a baby, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, it's very possible, very doable that you will attain that. It's just all up to you, um, how you feel and what you're willing to put up with. 
Um, I cannot stress enough that I do not regret the fact that we went through donor um, through a donor seed, as my daughter keeps calling it, donor sperm, to have my children. It's brought so much joy. Um, my tears of sorrow, honestly, after 14 to 16 years has ended. I don't cry like I used to. I don't leave mm. myself to bed anymore. My home is the happiest I've ever known it to be. And I wouldn't change a thing about it. And so I want people to experience this joy because it's the most beautiful thing. Um, by just keeping an open mind and exploring all options. Let's not let culture boggle us down and put us in a rabbit hole because yeah. those people that are imposing this culture on us at the end of the day are not with you when the curtains close. Yeah. So well said. Thank you. Thank you so much, Akira. This has been such an informative session, really inspiring. I cannot even begin to say how strong you are, you know, just to experience everything you've gone through and to come out of all of that to now be such a fierce advocate, you know, wanting to help so many other people to just get this information to, to teach them how to advocate for themselves and now starting a surrogacy agency it's just totally amazing. So thank you so much for doing everything that you do for, for making us proud, for, you know, for everything that you shared today, for what is yet to come, because we're so excited about all the things that lies ahead of you. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on here and we look forward to having you again in the near future. Thank you very much. I also want to add, sorry, I forgot about oh, no, of course. I just want to add, um, one of the things that we really want to do, which we're gonna work on too outside of the agency is also um, a foundation or an NGO, so to speak, that will mm. support um, our causes. My, what is my course? I've already stated it. Um, being an advocate for um, people to build families in whatever shape or form they prefer. Um, so, you know, one of the things we wanna do is help pay for IVF treatments through our foundation, which we wow. are still working on setting up, as well as, you know, where we cannot physically go ourselves to send the money, right, to advocate on our behalf, the political action committees, committees, because especially in America, all of this is advocacy, 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 right? And sometimes you cannot physically go, but your money can go to go advocate for you. And so working with, um, um, institutions like Resolve for yeah. me is really big where my my dream and goal is that one day if we're not part of Resolve but at least to be able to financially back up Resolve so that they can continue to advocate for us um, mm. to bring about the change because I do believe if we make changes here in America um, if people get to start recognizing um that infertility is like cancer, it's like blood pressure, it's like diabetes, that once it hits, we have to treat. If not, we will lose that person. Once we get to that here in America, I think a lot of parts of the world will follow too. Um, and so 
that's another thing that I'm very heavily focused on and very passionate about is the um, foundation or NGO that we're working on setting up as well. And part of the proceeds from our um, agency will be used to support the, um, the foundation or NGO as well. Wow, that sounds really, really amazing. And you, you highlighted so many important factors, uh, you know, supporting people for IVF, definitely very important. The fertility treatments are so expensive, but you're also highlighting the fact that many people don't realize that infertility is also an Ill, illness, a condition that should be funded by insurance companies and even our workplaces. Many workplaces cover many uh, health conditions, but not fertility treatments, because again, I think people are still seen as an elective procedure and something that you're choosing to do as opposed to something that you need to do to treat a condition. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So hopefully again, with all this advocacy and more awareness and education, we can have these changes implemented, at least for all companies that provide insurance to definitely include that yeah. as part of their coverage and governments and state agencies around the world as well. So yeah. yes, thank you. And thank you for that foundation also coming up. Thank you. Well thank done. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, we look forward to having you again in the near future. Hopefully at that time you can share details of the surrogacy uh, when you've actually launched it. And perhaps by then the foundation details will also be available and you can also just uh, enlighten us and give us more information about how to support. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much much. for having me. And thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for what you're doing in the community as well. Thank you. Um, Thank you for being here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Fertility Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Fertility Conversations. If there are any topics you would like to have discussed, please send an email to fertilityconversations at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you again for listening. Take care of yourself and do stay hopeful.